turning biblical theology into your biography. Some would say uh, that we're learning to walk the talk. Hear that a lot. Well, this is more than that. It's in some ways it's the same, um, but it's not what we talk that we want to live out. We want to live out the theology of God's word. How do we turn that into biography where, where our biography is the theology that we see in God's word? I want to begin with where we began last week, just by matter of introduction. Many Christians tend just to jog your, uh, I know most of you already know this, you can remember it from last week, but you've got to remember there's some people from Ole Miss here, so we need to accommodate then. Many people tend to sum up our faith by saying, Jesus Christ died for my sin. That's a wonderful statement to be able to make. It's a beautiful statement to make. But that statement does not set forth a world and life view that encompasses all of life. Many Christians say that, you know, I know Christ died for my sins and, and that's, that's the Christian faith for them. I was once there and they have the same trouble I had. I could not relate my I could not relate my relationship with Christ. I couldn't relate my faith in Christ to my everyday life, whether it was in high school or whether I was playing sports or whether I was hunting or fishing, uh, whether I was running with friends. I, cu- I couldn't, couldn't relate my faith to that. The Bible does not begin with a statement that we're sinners and Christ died for our sin. Uh, that's in Scripture. It's one of the centerpieces of Scripture. But the Bible begins, not with that, the Bible begins with God and creation and sets forth a world and life view that encompasses all of life. And that's what we want to do in this study is to examine these key doctrines of Scripture that help us to understand a biblical perspective of all of life. We began last week, that first lesson, how can you know your place in the long history of this crowded world? And we began by looking at God. And we said, God is the context from Genesis. In the beginning, God created. That's where it begins. And so here at the very beginning of creation, you have God. And at the end of creation, we looked in Revelation, you have God. And so God is the context of all of creation. God's the Alpha, the Omega. He's the context we saw of all of history. The history in the first century, the history of 2,000 years before Christ, he, he was a context of all of that history. We said he's the context of our lives. Every single person in this room, if Scripture's right, 
we're, we're in this context. It begins with God. All of creation did. All of history does. All of our lives. They all begin with Him. And they end with Him. They come from Him. They're headed toward Him. And we finished with this. We're, we're talking about that if you do away with God, your whole world and life view changes. If we're going to have a biblical perspective, if we're going to keep Scripture, you're going to say, I believe Scripture. I believe the Bible. I want to live out Scripture. I want to live out Christ in my life. If that's what you're saying, then it's an entirely different, it changes your lifestyle. It changes your world and life view. I wanted to accent that with you this evening. Before we do that, I need to stop. We need to pray. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for bringing us to this study. Father, thank you for how you blessed last week. And we pray that tonight we would hear your voice in our lives. Father, give us clear insight, clear sight. Improve our hearing that we might see and hear what you're saying to us in your word. John Sartell cannot do that. And so we ask that tonight you would teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> there was a philosopher born in 1844. His name was Frederick Nietzsche. How many, I'm just going to ask this. How many of you heard of Nietzsche? Anybody? Okay, a few. Nietzsche, the reason I'm asking about him, he died in 1900, 56 years old. 1900. And yet, his thinking, his philosophy, dominated the 20th century more than any single philosopher that was in modern times, 19th, 20th century. In fact, everything you see happening around us today in the progressive society in which we live, in the secular society in which we live, was directly related to Nietzsche. He wrote a piece called The Madman. And I'm going to take time to read it to you. Um, it's powerful. Now, this man, Nietzsche, is the father of the goddess dead movement. He's the father of secular society. And this is what he wrote. This is by his own hand. The Madman. Have you ever heard of the madman who on a bright morning lighted a lantern and ran into the marketplace calling out, unceasingly, I seek God. I seek God. As there were many people standing about who did not believe in God, he caused a great deal of amusement. People said, why is God lost? Has he strayed away like a child? Or does he keep himself hidden? Is he afraid of us? Has he taken a sea voyage? Has he immigrated? The people cried out laughingly, all in a hubbub. The insane man jumped into their midst. 
and transfixed them with his glances. Where's God gone? He called out. I mean to tell you, I mean to tell you, we have killed him, you and I. We are all his murderers. But now, how have we done it? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the whole horizon? What did we do when we loosed the earth from its sun? Whither does it move now? Whither do we move? Away from all suns? Do we not dash on unceasingly backwards, sideways, forwards? What he's saying is, if God is dead, if God is not there, there's no mooring. You know, we're, we're coming from nowhere and going nowhere. That's what he's saying. Does not empty space breathe upon us? Has it not become colder? Does not night come on continually? Darker and darker, shall we not have to light lanterns in the morning? Do we not hear the noise of grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell the divine putrefaction? For even God's putrefy. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we console ourselves? The most murderous of all murderers, the holiest and the mightiest that the world has hitherto possessed, has bled to death under our knife. Who will wipe away the blood from us? With what water could we cleanse ourselves? What lustrums, what sacred games shall we have to devise? Is not the magnitude of this deed too great for us? Shall we not ourselves have to become gods merely to seem worthy of it? There never was a greater event. Did you hear that? There never was a greater event. And on account of it, all those who are born after us belong to a higher history than any history hitherto. Here the madman was silent and looked again at his hearers. They were silent and looked at him in surprise. At last he threw his lantern on the ground so that a broken pieces was extinguished. I come too early, he then said. I'm not come at the right time. This prodigious event is still on its way and is traveling. It has not yet reached men's ears. Lightning and thunder need time. The light of the stars need time. Deeds need time. Even after they're done, deeds need time to be seen and heard. This deed is as yet further from them than the furthest star, and yet they have done it themselves. It is further stated that the madman made his way into different churches on the same day, and there intoned his requiem to the eternal God. When led out and called to account, he always gave the reply, What are these churches now if they're not tombs and monuments of God? What was he saying? He was setting forth, he was looking at a Europe, a Christian landscape in Europe, and he was shouting, God is dead. God is dead. And it changes everything. That's what he was saying. Changes the way we think. It changes our world and life view. That's where we ended last week, saying, if you you do away with God, as our secular society has, then life does not go on. You, you, You live by a different premise. You live by a different formula. You live by a different, quote, truth. 
we ended by saying, without this God, you become a piece of protoplasm made up of so many elements from the periodic chart. And you're coming from nowhere. You've come from nowhere and you're going to nowhere and there's no meaning and there's no purpose and it's dark. That was the first week. Uh, tonight, we looked at last week. You know, where do I fit in this? Where, where do I fit in this creation? Among all of the history of, uh, on all of creation and all of history, where do I fit? We answer that question. Uh, that God is our context. And you take away that context. And nothing is the same. Well, tonight, we've jumped ahead really to the third lesson. Next week, we'll come back to the second. But this was a logical, I, I, the more I thought about it, I said, this is what we have to do tonight. I suppose, I think most of us are familiar with the Born series, the movie series uh, that, that has come out. Um, in the movie, The Born Identity, the protagonist has forgotten who he is. He wakes up with a gunshot wound on a fishing boat in the Mediterranean. He does not remember his name. He does not remember how he was wounded. He does not remember his vocation. The whole movie, and several movies after that, it's a story of this young man trying to discover his identity. That's very much like the dilemma of modern man. This is very much like the dilemma of the world around us. This is not far off. It's, it's all around us. We have forgotten who we are. It's not only true of the secular world. You can say that to the secular world easily. But it's true in our Christian world. What is, what is the primary what is the first truth the Bible uses to describe man? What's the first truth the Bible uses to describe you? If we went knocking, if we went knocking on doors in Memphis tonight and somehow could just pick out church members and we ask, how does the Bible describe man? How does the Bible describe who you are? The greater percentage of those people would say, well, that's easy. The Bible says we're sinners and we need a Savior. And that's true. However, that's not the very first thing the Bible says about man. It's not the very first thing the Bible says about you. Look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Do you see that? Four times in three verses, God says, let's make man in our image. Look at it again. Verse 26, let's make man in our image. One, that's one. After our likeness, that's two. Skip down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. That's three. In the image of God, he created him. 
In Hebrews poetry, in prose, when, you know, when you're writing something, all of us have been writing something and we want to emphasize it. What do we do? We capitalize. We put it in bold letters or we put it, we change the font and make bigger letters or we, we move it to an upper case. Well, they didn't have highlighters. They didn't capitalize. But when a Hebrew writer wanted to emphasize something, he simply repeated it. You see it all through scripture. So when he does this four times in three verses, he is saying, this is significant. This is huge. He's saying, listen up. Now, as you read that, that name not ring your bell this evening. You might be saying, so what? People, this is gigantic. This is not a message that kind of whispers into our culture. It's a message that thunders. It's a lightning bolt into our culture. It should shake our society to the very foundation. For years I was a Christian. Now I didn't understand that I was made in God's image. I, would, I knew that was there in Scripture. It didn't dawn on me what it was saying. If you had asked me, what does that mean? I would say, I, I don't know. I was already a Christian, believer. But when I learned this, it changed everything. I was, I was like I'd spent the first two decades of my life with amnesia. In some ways, I didn't know who I was. I want you to look at this and see first the unique wonder of man. Look at verse 26 again. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is what God said about man, about mankind, about us. What made man special? How was he different from the rest of creation? How did God differentiate man from the rest of the animal kingdom? Remember, he, he, got, he, he made the animals. It was only after he made the animals that he said, Now, let's make another creature. And what will be unique about him? What will be unique? He'll be in our image. What he's saying here, the wonder of man, we could think of all the ways that we're unique and, and really just fantastically wonderful. You know, did you know that in the last 24 hours in your life, your heart pumped 1,800 gallons of blood into your, through your veins? Think about that. That's what it did over and over and over again until it was 1,800 gallons that you'd pump. That's, un that's unbelievable. But God didn't mention that. You know, there's an incredible sensitivity in the organ that we call our skin. We can feel the coolness, the coldness of a single snowflake. We can taste the difference between milk and water. But God didn't talk about that. He didn't talk about that. The wonder of man is that he's made in God's image. 
So what does that mean? It does not mean that we look like God physically, the way that a child. So when I walk into a room and see you in it, many of you, you know, years and years and years ago, I taught your parents. And I walk in and I say, ah, you know, it's got to be a cruise back there. You know, it's in, and I see, you see, so there's a likeness. Well, that's not what this is. It's not what this is. We read in Scripture that God clearly teaches that He is a spirit and that He has not a body like man, so we, we don't look like Him in that way. So, all right, what does it mean? God has certain characteristics. God has certain attributes that cannot be given away. He can't give them away. He can't, he can't make someone else have them. He cannot give away, for instance, his omnipotence. He can't give away his omniscience. He can't give away his eternity. All those, those words belong to God and God. Those attributes belong to God and God alone. The theologians call them the incommunicable attributes. They cannot be communicated to someone else. But there are communicable attributes about God. For instance, we talk about the love of God. He made us able to love. It tells us in Scripture that God is a spirit. He is spiritual in nature. We read in Scripture that He's personal. We read in Scripture that He's rational. Let's talk about these for a minute. As He is a spirit, He's made us to have a spirit, to be physical and spiritual. I have a physical body that's identifiable. You can look at me and say, that old guy, that's, that's John Sartell. Just so the Bible teaches that I have a spiritual soul that is just as real and just as identifiable as my physical body. Let's look at two scripture verses. One, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts. Do you read that? He, he doesn't say he just pierces our lives physically. He says, he pierces to the division of soul and body, to the division of spirit and body. He's saying we're both physical and spiritual creatures. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.8. Yes, we are of good courage that we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. What's he mean? When, when our bodies fail, when our bodies die, we have a spirit, we have a soul that goes home to be with the Lord. So he made us not only to be physical, and that's wonderful. Too many Christians, we'll talk about this another time, too many Christians want to be this, you know, say, we're spiritually, I want to be, you know, this, and, and we don't pay attention to the physical. God made this world physical, and it's a good thing. He gave us physical bodies, and a good thing. In the end, there's going to be a resurrection. I had a, a wonderful Brittany Spaniel uh, named Jack. He was just a great, great upland bird hunting dog. 
We hunted grouse together in the mountains of Kentucky and in New Hampshire. I loved that dog. But he didn't have a soul. He was not a spiritual being. He was made up of so many elements, a periodic chart. His body returned to earth. For the last 75 years, in our culture, with the first grade, we have been teaching the children of our culture that they're mere animals. That is now the thinking of our... That's a prevalent... After 75 years, that's a prevalent thinking of our culture. That we're just physical. So many elements from the periodic chart. Over 20 years ago, about 25 or... Between 25 and 30 years now, there was a temporary... You know, it was temporary... <laughs> new exhibit in the London Zoo. They put eight human beings, men and women, in a cage at the zoo for people to see. What are they saying? There's no difference between man and an animal. No difference between me and a horse or a zebra or a lion. We live and we die. We're made up of elements from the periodic chart. We live and die and rot. That's what Nietzsche said about God. You know, God's gone. God is no more. And even God's putrefy. There's no soul to be joined with a resurrected body. There's no soul to go home to God. And there's no God to whom we can go. Scripture comes along and the first thing it says, you're made in God's image. You're spiritual. You have a spirit about you. Secondly, we look in Scripture and we see that God's personal. Sunday morning in our worship, I talked about the transcendence of God. And we can talk about that so much, that He's transcended above all. Unimaginable. Vast. But He's personal. Abraham was called, what? The friend of God. There was Job, whom God loved. You see, he made us personal. To have relationships with others on a deep soul level. That's far above the relationships that you see in the animal kingdom. He made us to be personal in a way that no animal can. We're people that were made for relationships. In 1965, Simon and Garfunkel sang a song about the pain of relationships. It was called I Am a Rock. And he wrote, and they sang, it's a beautiful song. A winter's day in a deep and dark December, I am alone gazing from my window to the streets below on a freshly fallen shroud of silence, shroud of snow. I'm a rock. I'm an island. I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. 
Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I'm a rock, I'm an island. Don't talk of love. Well, I've heard the word before. It's sleeping in my memory. I won't disturb the slumber or feelings that have died. If I never loved, I never would have cried. I'm a rock, I'm an island. I have my books in my poetry to protect me. I'm shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I'm a rock, I'm an island, and a rock feels no pain or an island ever cries. There's a problem. He has a problem. That's not the way God created us. And you know this. I don't have to tell you this. God created us for relationship. He gave each of us personalities. Gave us talents. You know, if I took, someone had taken any one of us when we were six years old and put us in a wonderful, wonderful three or four rooms, had books, bathrooms, but no one lived there. And when you're five or six years old, you're put there. And for the next 30 years, you see no one. Food is delivered. You open a place in the wall several times a day, and there's food there. And you take it out. We eat it. And you're in there for 30 or 35 years. Tell me, what does that do to you? What's that do? Does a person come out of that normal? It's destructive. There's no way. There's no way a person would come through that terribly, terribly warped. Why? God made us to have relationships. Many of, many of you ladies are going to have a baby. How many have children here tonight? Does anybody have children? Right, right here. You've had, so you know. Right, two of them, you know. Do you remember the first time you held that baby? You know. It's incredible, isn't it? God made you for that relationship. You know, God made you for that relationship. So he says, you're spiritual. You're personal. So I remember when I was in college, I was a Christian and there was, I, I ran with a group of guys that were serious. We were serious about theology. Serious. And somehow it was pressed upon me from this group that I needed to be more sedate, that I needed to be uh, more serious. Uh, and I took them at their word. And for a year, I, I, I sort of just pressed down my personality. I, I pressed down who... I knew John Sartell was, but I thought, this is not good. And after a year, I was miserable. And it was, begin it was then that I began to discover what I'm talking about tonight. That God created us to have relationships, to experience this exchange in this world. So he made us spiritual, he made us personal. God's, God's spiritual. God's personal. 
we read in Scripture that God's rational. Look at this in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts and your thoughts. So God is rational. He made us to be rational. He said it there. He said, so we have, we have thoughts. We think. He made you, he made me, to be rational. You know, no animal on earth except man sits down by a fire and reads a book. No man, you know, no animal. Man alone sits down by the fire and writes a book. Some of you are musicians. Oh, I wish I was a musician. I wish, I wish, I asked someone in my office today, I said, we we're talking about singing. I said, can you hear the bass line when the organ's playing a piano playing? He said, well, sure. Oh, I hate you. you know, I can't do that. You know. But God gave, in, 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 in our rational mind, He made some people able to do that. Made some people able to write music, to hear music in their head as they write it. I learned that God created me to be rational. This really happened. I went through, I never studied, you know, through grammar school, through elementary school, through high school. I studied just enough to keep from getting grounded. There went through a point when I was about in the fourth or fifth grade. The first six weeks, I would make straight C's and my parents would ground me. Next six weeks, I'd made straight A's. And you know the story. I got free from getting grounded and I went back straight seas. You know, I, was, I, I didn't take learning and thinking and studying seriously. When I was a sophomore in college, I was coming to this doctrine being made in God's image. But I also found out, I discovered, I didn't know this. In the school, where it was a great school. It, it was a lot like Rhodes. Just a very... It was a very academic institution. 85% of its graduates went to graduate school. But I just filed away my time there the first two years. And then I discovered, I didn't like classes. And I discovered that if I had a B plus average, A minus average, I had unlimited cuts. I didn't have to go to class. Let me tell you, within a year, I had unlimited cuts. You know, that, and that, you know, I became a student. But about the same time, I understood that God made me rational. And for the first time, I began to study and to read. I became, I became insatiable. I just read everything I got my hands on. I studied. And after I, I got the grade and made the God unlimited cuts, I continued this. It was just the most fascinating, wonderful thing. It changed me. Finally, we read that God is holy. He's moral. And He made man moral. This is where the atheist struggles. Where does morality come from? Is there an absolute right and wrong? Is there? Is there an absolute right and wrong? 
There's not, if there's no God. This is not debatable. If there's no God, then there's no absolute moral law. It's just whatever, you know, man thinks. You you can kill six million Jews, kill babies in the womb, whatever. Look at Romans 2, 14 and 15. What about people that don't know what Scripture says? Listen to this. Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. They have a conscience. They know right wrong. Why? Because they're made in God's image. In my first pastorate in the mountains of Virginia, I met a young lady and at that time she was only about five years younger than me and Janet and I befriended her. Uh, she had just graduated from a very elite school for college for women in Virginia and with honors was going to another institution to get a law degree. She was from this community way back in the mountains. Sharp, sharp, sharp girl. And she was an atheist. And she was fascinated by our ministry and what we were doing. And we would talk about this. And, you know, where, do you, where does your morality come from? What determines your morality? Well, one, one evening we had been sled riding. Uh, it was snow about two feet deep. It was just a beautiful, beautiful winter. And six or seven of us had been out for the entire evening going down the side of a mountain. It was beautiful. And we came back to the house and we were having some snacks. And I knew that two weeks before she had been in Washington, D.C., protesting, marching against the war in Vietnam. And she would have assumed that I was pro-war. And so I asked her, her name was Ann, I said, Ann, what about the war in Vietnam? What about it? And she would have assumed that I would have been a hawk. And she looked at me, and those eyes narrowed, and she said, it's wrong. I said, really? And I sat down, just across from her. I sat down and said, tell me about it. Is that, is that, tell me about the war in Vietnam. And she began to talk about how wrong and terrible it was. And I said, really, I said, are you saying that the war's wrong? And she looked at me like I couldn't hear her. And she said, John, it's wrong. I said, really, really? And she looked at me and she started pounding her knees and saying, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. And then she looked up 
and tears started coming down her cheeks. And she says, I can't say that, can I? I said, no, you can't. No, you can't. The last I saw of her, she was leaving to go back to school. And she came and we went out to lunch. Janet and I took her to lunch and came back to the house. And as she was leaving, she turned around and looked at me. I'll never forget it. She looked at me and said, damn, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. He made us spiritual, personal, rational, and moral. And we can't get away from it. You can't get away from it. No one can live as if there's no moral law. It's what Ann was trying to do. I've known atheist after atheist after atheist. Some of them very close friends of mine. And that was the thing that most bothered them when I said to them, how do you determine what's right and wrong? How do you, how do you determine that? They can't. And but they they will say, they come to a point and say, you know, this this is wrong. All right. The wonder and uniqueness of man. That's what this is about. You absolutely are spiritual, you're personal, you're rational, and you're moral. You say, John, come on now. You and I both know we sinned. It's true. But that didn't destroy the image of God. We didn't become animals when we sinned. Very quickly, we're at the end. Look at Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in the image of God. He said, this is after. There's murder in the world. This is after there's sin in the world. He says, you're still in God's image. Look at James 3, 9. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. This is after the fall. We're still here. The image of God in us is marred. It's scarred. It's now the foundation is not God in his word, but the foundation is sin and self. But the image is still there. And he says that man has tremendous value because you're made in God's image. Sin didn't take it away. Sin doesn't take it away. It determines how you look at other people. There's people in our lives that we don't like. We don't like to be around them. We don't want to talk to them for some reason. Somebody did did us wrong or whatever. That person's made in God's image. What did he say? You can't. You can't curse man and say that you love God because that man's made 
in God's image. There's people that the world just walks on by. Homeless man down on the street. Out in the cold. Garbage truck comes by and they pick the man up and they throw him off of the curve up against the building. What's a Christian do with that? I know guys that work in the inner city. And they come along and they'll sit down on the curb and they'll take that man and lay his head in their lap. Why? Why? Because he's made in God's image. We want to say, oh, he's doing that to tell him about Jesus. Nope, that's not the first reason. The first reason is that man has a value. That has a man has a value. Every person you meet tomorrow, every person you see tomorrow, whether they know Christ or don't know Christ, that person's made in God's image. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'll teach us what this means. What does this mean to us in our homes, in our relationships, in our work? What does this mean? Father, help us to live out this theology in our biography. May our lives say that we're made in God's image. May the way that we look at other people say they're made in God's image. Oh, bless us, we pray in this. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.